I know I'm not the only one that has had this experience. I'm just sure of it. You're talking with your teenage child. You explain a chore they need to do. And then the response is, I don't understand. I don't understand. Then you explain it again, all the details of what you want done, and then comes the response, but I don't understand. I don't understand. What do you want me to do? At some point in that conversation, you get to the point where you say, no, you understand. You just don't want to do it. You ever had that experience? Surely, I am not the only one. Some of you that are owners and uh, of businesses, you may have an employee where you've had that conversation before, where you explain it to your employee over and over again, and they just happen to just never understand what you're saying. And it just happened to be something they didn't want to do. And I'm just saying that Tess and I get to have that experience regularly in our home. Now, the, now, now, If Tess was up here, she would now turn, look at me, and say, really, just our kids? Is that the only one that does that? Um, And I'd say, absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So I want you to hold that experience. I just want you to hold that in your mind, because it's going to come back in a little bit. So just hold that experience, uh, and and then we'll we'll pull it back here in just a little bit. We're going to now pick up in the next part of the Gospel of Mark. We're on a long journey through the Gospel of Mark. Although the Gospel of Mark is a fast-paced account of the life of Jesus, we're trying to take it with measured steps so that we can see all the context involved and also themes as they develop. And along the way, we're trying to look and be more like Jesus. That's really the goal on this long journey through the Gospel of Mark. And now we're picking up with this part of the story, and it's going to feel like we've already been here before. So let's pick up chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. Chapter 9, verse 30 through 37, we pick up with the next part of the story. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Now, Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed, uh, whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever becomes Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This passage, this passage right here, continues our journey to the cross. Here again, Jesus says something about where his journey is going. It's going to go to the cross. It will be the Son of Man having to die. He'll be rejected and killed. Now, we know, because we've been on this journey for a while, that this theme, this theme, this trajectory of the story, we've seen it from the beginning. Remember that when Jesus started his public ministry, that immediately he went into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. Right from the get-go, conflict starts. And then right after the wilderness, he faces many demon possessions. That is, people who are possessed by these impure spirits. And so immediately he comes into conflict with evil in his public ministry. Then again and again, we see him coming into conflict with the religious leaders, and they're not happy. They try to get rid of Jesus. 
And then in just in chapter 6, so not even three chapters before, probably months before, we read and we studied how John the Baptist, who we thought would probably be Jesus' right-hand man, he was beheaded, his head cut off by one of the kings there in Palestine, in ancient Judea. So what we thought might be this royal kingdom, this mighty, this mighty reign has ended for one of the main figures in death. That's foreshadowing where the story's going. And then in chapter 8, just, just the chapter right before, Jesus said the very same thing he just said in chapter 9. He said the Son of Man would have to be rejected, killed, and then after three days he'd come back from the dead. So when we get to chapter 9 and we read the same thing again, we need to pay attention. And today what I want to do is I want us to focus our attention on that misunderstanding we see with the disciples. Because our journey, our journey from the beginning all the way up to this point is teaching us something. Just, just make sure we're going to get this piece. So let's put up that, that next piece. The life of Jesus we have seen and are seeing would not end in an afternoon stroll down the streets of Jerusalem, but in an ultimate battle with sin and the forces of evil. That's where this is going. And so now in chapter 9, we see this repeated, this prophecy about going to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed, rejected. And here the disciples again don't understand. Now one thing we've not done in all of our sermons up to this point is we've never really looked at this misunderstanding, this lack of understanding. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a deep dive into this misunderstanding. We're going to want, I want us to understand why the disciples couldn't see what Jesus could see. That's going to get a bit nerdy. We're going, we're going to geek out on this a little bit because we're going to do a lot of Bible. Uh, and I hope you're okay with that. If you're not, it doesn't matter. We're still doing it. I'm just hoping that you'll come along with me on this journey. And so what we want to do is I want us to understand the disciples had a particular view that Jesus would be a certain kind of king who took a certain kind of path. And if I had to visualize it, this is the way I would draw that picture. Let's put that one up. So here in the lower left-hand corner, we have what I'm going to represent as Jesus, and we have this dotted line all the way up to the right-hand corner with this crown that is a path to king. And the disciples believe that God would send a king to deliver his people from their enemies and rule the nations forever. And this king, he would have certain traits along the way, like every king, anyone powerful, anyone that will reign on a throne and then reign the nations is going to look a certain way. And there's a particular path to get to that throne. And the disciples had these ideas locked in, and they kind of carried them with them, with them, you know, in their minds. But Jesus here is going to begin to play with those boxes they've put Jesus in. But I want to understand, what did the disciples carry in their minds? Like, what kind of king did they think he would be, and what kind of path would he take? And to understand that, we need to go back into the Old Testament and take a look at some of the things that they would have seen as promises being fulfilled by Jesus. So it's not like they like came out of nowhere. There were places in Isaiah where they were picking up these descriptions of the coming king, believing Jesus was going to fulfill, fulfill them in a particular way along a particular path. So this is where we're going to geek out a little bit on the Bible. We're going to take a journey through the book of Isaiah. We're going to do a, a survey through those portraits 
of this king. And take a look at this path all the way to the throne and see why the disciples might have believed the way they did. So we want to start Isaiah chapter 9. So come with me. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll pick up verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the, greatest, uh, uh, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, when I take a look at both those verses, I see there in those verses a lot of royal language. There's a lot of reigning here. There's, there's, there's a sitting on a throne, okay? There's a government in play. There's a, there's a prince of peace here. So if we go back to our picture, the disciples have a view that as this coming king makes his march to the throne, this upward path, they know he will be royal. He's going to look like the other kings of the world, but this king will be the king of kings, but there's no reason to doubt he'll look like other kings. He will be royal. He will be a prince. He will reign on a throne. So this is, this is the path they believe Jesus will take. It will be one defined by royalty. Royalty like the Roman Caesars, but this one will be greater than any other that has ever existed. Okay, let's take a look. So we'll just keep walking through Isaiah. Isaiah 11, we see another promise of this coming king. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, we're going to take this as an excerpt, okay? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad, King David's dad. So this is someone coming from the family of David, of King David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Now he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. Look, what's he gonna, look what he's going to do. He's going to slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. This coming king will come and destroy the wicked. He will be a deliverer. So God's people suffer under the weight of oppression, but don't you worry, there is a coming king who will deliver his people. And so as they understand the path to the throne, this person's going to wield a lot of strength. They're going to have big biceps, big tanks, big guns, and they're going to take care of business. Okay? So let's kind of put that now on our, our visual. As we make this upward path to the throne, the disciples have this view that not only will he be defined as royal, he will also be a deliverer. So you've got to imagine, they think that like Jesus is going to kick out Rome. Like he's going to, he's going to like whoop up on some foreigners in their land. And this isn't like just with words. Literally, bodies will be laying on the ground. They will be, they will, blood will be spilled because this king will get rid of the enemy. And usually you have to do that by killing a bunch of people. So in their mind, they're ready. They're ready for the coming war. So let's keep going. Let's keep going. Isaiah 42, take a look at another one of these promises. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, here is my servant. This is the servant that's coming, okay, the king that will come. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring 
justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. So not only is is he going to be royal, this certain kind of king taking a certain path, not only is he going to be royal, but he's going to be a deliverer, he's also going to be a judge. Like he's going to make sure that everything's taken, taken into account. And so if you take that visual into, and, and, and now put this on that visual, now you see the trajectory. This will be someone who is royal. He'll be deliverer. He will be a judge. I mean, think about people who are judges. They, can be, they have a lot of power. They make important decisions. And so they just, the disciples see Jesus on this upward path of power and influence. And they are grabbing all of this from Isaiah. It's not like they're, this is out of nowhere. It's not like they're just looking at the Roman Caesar saying, man, look at that Roman emperor. I want something like that. No, they have a rich tradition, believing that God's sending a king. And he's going to look a certain way, and he's going he's to walk a certain path, very much like other earthly kings walk, except he's going to be greater than them all. All right, let's go to now Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, another place where we see a promise. We pick up, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. Now you do have the servant here talking in first person. My mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow, concealed me in his quiver. Now take a look at the language there. Sword, arrow, Here, these are descriptions of power. And I want you to understand, I want you to think of the U.S. Army. I want you to think of, like, power. Like, you don't want to mess with the U.S. Army because the U.S. Army has lots of power. I want you to understand that when you think sword and arrow, okay? So when I put that on the visual, I want us to understand that these disciples are carrying this idea that their king not only would be royal and and be a deliverer and he would be a a just judge, but he would be powerful. He's going to be powerful. Like he's going to bring a lot of weapons to to the battle, okay? You can imagine. I mean, you would be full of hope. If an enemy had overrun your country— and you had this kind of king you were hoping for, and then he showed up, you'd be looking for all the same things. You'd be picking the same promises. And so now we end, we end this, this walk through Isaiah with Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, another grand promise of who was coming. Verses 9, 10, we'll end with verse 13 on this excerpt here. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm. This holy arm is a reference to a person coming. So we understand that in context. So the Lord's going to lay bare this coming king. That's his holy arm in the sight of all nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Then verse 13, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So no one's going to question No one's going to question the power of this coming king. So if we put that on the visual, he will be exalted. He's going to be exalted. Now this this right here looks, looks like a list that you could put on top of any earthly king or dictator or leader of great influence across the world. This is the trajectory you take. 
You, you are the kind of person who is a great judge. You're going to deliver a particular people. You're going to have some royalty around you, and that may look different depending on where you are. But you're going to be powerful. In the end, you will be exalted. And people will know who you are. And there'll probably be some type of coronation where everyone looks to you. This is just the way the world works. And so the disciples believe this is the trajectory. But, but they were missing. They were missing a key piece of the, of the path. So if we had to just take, 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 take this and put a summary around it and move us to how Jesus is thinking, I'd like to say it, let's say it this way. Let's go to that next slide. The disciples could only see part of the path to the throne. Jesus saw all of it. Now, now the disciples were seeing key pieces of Isaiah. But there were some pieces they missed. Because who would have ever thought these pieces in Isaiah related to the coming king? You know, we just looked at Isaiah 49. And we noted in Isaiah 49 that there we see a powerful king. In that same, that same passage of Scripture in Isaiah 49, there's this piece that disciples never saw. And many of the Jews, they didn't see it either. Take a look, Isaiah 49. Let's pick up what Jesus saw. Isaiah 49, 7. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised, abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Who talks like that? Who talks about their king being despised? Here is a key piece that no one else was seeing. But don't worry, he may be despised, but you see how this verse ends? Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Here in Isaiah 49, 7, in the midst of this passage that's talking about this coming king that we thought was going to be all about power and strength, beating up the enemy, we see that in the middle of this promise, this king, this king would take a downward trajectory, that he would be despised. This next visual is very, very important for us. The disciples saw an upward path, an upward path of power and strength, royalty. That's the way all of us might think. Jesus saw another path. And it was right there in Isaiah the whole time. And he knew he had to take it. Take a look at this next visual. It's not, it's not a path that leads straight up from one corner, bottom left, to the top right. It's a path that has to go down. It's a path that has to move in the valley, valley of humility. It's a path that's going to include the king being despised. It's going to move through the cross. And through the cross, then, that's where we will see the upward trajectory. You see, we all think the way you, the way you get to exaltation is that you've got to go through power and strength. You've got to build up your military and you move forward. The way of Jesus was that you moved through humility. It would ultimately lead to rejection and death. And by moving through death, you then move up to exaltation. Now, the famous passage here is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 49.7 doesn't, doesn't give us really a view of how dark this picture gets in Isaiah. Isaiah 53, we see that description laid out fully 
of this coming king. And no one wanted to tie the coming king with this suffering servant. But Jesus knew they had to be together. Isaiah 53, 5 through 7, we'll pick up 11. This is the whole chapter, but we're just taking a small chunk. But he, this is the king, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And a sheep before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Ah, but there's a promise in verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 11 is the promise that the suffering doesn't end in death. It ends in life. And so the promise here is right there, but so many didn't see it. So put that up on the visual now. Do you see that the way to the throne was actually through the way of rejection and death. He would be despised and crushed. That's how he would get to being royal, a deliverer. How he would be powerful, exalted, and be a judge. You see, it just reverses the way that we typically think. It literally takes the way of the world and flips it upside down. And so... Let's just take that into a summary statement that we can condense everything we've just done into this statement. Jesus always knew that the path to his coronation and victory over evil would go through a Roman cross, not through a big military. Mm. That's a different kind of story. There in Isaiah the whole time, but really hard for the disciples to see. Now, I want us to get a full picture of this, so I want to put up a quote from one scholar that says concisely what's going on here so that we can understand why it had to be a path into humility and up to exaltation, not one straight from, 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 from birth to exaltation with no suffering. Take a look at what one scholar says here. This is how God would overcome the horrific evil that has duped humanity into thinking they are God. This is how God will become the victor over the human evil that resulted from that tragic error. God would send a son of Eve to conquer evil by allowing evil to conquer him and then overcoming its power of death by his love and eternal life. On the cross, evil and sin, your sin, my sin, it did its worst and it lost. And at that point, nothing else now can win. Love wins. Love wins. And that's the story of Jesus. Now, can we just now roll back to that opening question. Why didn't the disciples understand this? Why didn't they get this? Well, I think the reason they didn't get it is the same reason that my teenagers don't understand when I tell them how to do a chore. Because they don't want to. Can we just put that graphic back up for a second? Can we put that graphic back up? There it is. This is a new one. But do you see here? The disciples thought that the way to life was trying to be the greatest. But Jesus then comes back around and says, no, you don't get it. 
If you want to get to great, if you want to get to true life, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, if we're honest, who wants to do that? Who wants to go the path of humility? I don't want to take the valley road. I want to take the road that goes straight from me to greatness. That's what I want. And I'll argue with anyone along the way that I am the greatest. That kind of thing. That's what, that feels a lot better. Because when you do that, you can get your gossip in play. You know, you can make sure to put down the right, you know, certain number of people in your conversations. You can make sure to do some manipulation. Maybe sell yourself this way. The way to greatness feels really good along the way. That's what we want to take. And the disciples, the disciples could not understand the way of Jesus. Because they were too busy talking about who was the greatest. And we... We must notice how Mark puts those two in, in back-to-back as a foil to one another. And the moment they're not understanding, they're arguing about who can be the greatest. It's just like me. I'll just own this. It's just like me. When Tess tells me to do something and I come back with, wait, wait, wait I, don't, I don't think I understand. And I figure if I don't understand enough, I won't have to do it. That kind of thing. So we need to, we want to see this in its full light. You know what's interesting? Is that this is the same thing, the same thing Jesus said in chapter 8. Same thing he said in chapter 8. He just said it a little different. But I think we would do well to remember what Jesus said because he had something to say about the way to life, this way of life. I mean, he said this same thing with this same visual. He did it in chapter 8. Take a look. Chapter 8. We were, we were back there, Mark chapter 8. Can we, we'll put up chapter 8. Did it freeze? That's okay. That's okay, because I know I could get my Bible out. But I do all of this on Google Documents, okay? Google Docs, so I have my sermon right here. I've never had to do this, but it appears today. Mark A's not up? I want you to understand that... <laughs> that... I understand that some of you don't think I'm human. <laughs> Tess could obviously disabuse you of that illusion very quickly, but I am. So we'll just use my real Bible then, since we are, this is simply a matter of me forgetting to put up a scripture. Let's go. So it's in my, it's in my manuscript, but obviously not in the presentation. Um, let me read now just what Jesus said, Mark 8, 34 through 35. Here's what he says. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will actually lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. That's this picture in words in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 35. So let's take all of that and all of our geekiness and let's take that into some application. Like, let's get that down on the ground for real life. Now, on, in this way, like in this case, I think we're going to need a bridge. Like, I think we need something to get us from the depth of our Bible study to something that meets you right where you are in the pew. So, I'm going to now employ the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul wrote the story of Jesus, one who was God in flesh, came down into humility to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God exalted him. He, tell, he tells that story in Philippians chapter 2. And in that story, he makes some application 
I want it to be the bridge. I want it to be the bridge, because I think he does a really good job here of making application. He was inspired, so I figured, he, he, you know, we can use him. Here is Paul, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to care about other people. The way of the disciples, the way of this world is to just try to figure out how you can be the greatest. And that takes a lot of different forms. We typically aren't actually conscious of trying to be the greatest. It takes a lot more subtle form. That's how that poison gets into the heart and spreads through our body and habits so easily. Because sometimes it's deceptive. You don't even know what's happening. Now, let me say it another way. This Someone coined this. I didn't come up with this, but let's say it this way. If we had to take Philippians 2, 3 through 4, and maybe put it in modern language, it might be this. A life of humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, okay? This is not a call to beat yourself up. Like, you don't need to look in the mirror and talk about all the bad things in your life. You don't need to, you don't need to like, you know, Talk about all the things that are wrong with who you are. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus has an amazing eternal destiny for all of us. And I think heaven will be a wonderful place where we are working and and building and creating. And I think we continue to become the kind of persons that actually enjoy him and enjoy one another. And his glory will be our light. I think think that, that we have this wonderful purpose in front of us. So this is not a matter of beating yourself up, but it is a matter of maybe thinking about yourself less. So here's one test. Here's one test you might might throw on top of your life. When you wake up in the morning, are you thinking about what you have to do that day? Like, are you fundamentally thinking about you? Hmm. Now, this one gets under my skin because when I wake up every day, I already know what I want to do, need to do, and I'm thinking about me. Even when I'm changing a diaper because my one-year-old has woke me up earlier than I wanted to be up, I'm still thinking about me. And I don't know, maybe you can relate to that. Think of all the other ways we might think about just me. You know, one way this begins to become very difficult is that especially when you're in pain, pain has a way of putting you front and center in your life. Like when your toe, when you stub your toe, you know what you're thinking about? Your stub toe. That's right. And that's like an easy example. But when you suffer from chronic pain or maybe some mental illness, like you literally are walking through a valley of depression, it's very hard to get outside of yourself. And that's not a critique. That's the reality of a broken world where we actually suffer. And so we really need to pay attention to ways that is training that gets us to think about someone else, someone else. And God does work in those places that begin to, begin to shape us and heal us and make us more like his son, Jesus. So I'm not, like, there's no formula here. It's not like if you do this one thing tomorrow, then, then you'll be perfect and you'll be healed. But this is a challenge to begin to think about yourself less. So tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're thinking about you and I'm thinking about me, the challenge is to think about someone else. 
And, and I don't even mean you do anything with it. Like, it would be a great practice, great training for me to wake up and think about Tess. Like, I wonder how Tess is feeling today, rather than I'm on to the races on what I want to do. And, you know, maybe you put, a, like, something on your phone that will, like, ding and remind you, think about someone else besides yourself. Like, maybe that's your alarm. You know, you can put, like, a message on your alarm. Like, maybe that's what you do. You're like, right, think about someone else besides yourself. That may be a great thing you do, and you have it go off once, once a day, twice a day. I don't know. I'm just trying to think off the cuff here of things that you could do, you and I can do, to think about ourselves less. But let me give you a next step that I think we can all do that might actually get to the heart of how we take this application into this week. Here's the next step. It's a short one, but a difficult one. Be inconvenienced and help someone. Now, that be inconvenienced is really important because, let's be honest, you and I, we don't have, really usually don't have any problem helping someone. Like, I will help lots of you. I just make sure that it fits my schedule, right? I just make sure I do it in a way that feels comfortable. Like, I'll help any of you. Just give me a heads up and, like, let me plan for it, and, and I'll make sure to help you, right? And I'll make sure to do it just enough to where I'm not, com- I'm not uncomfortable. But that's not what Jesus is driving for here, is it? Jesus is driving us to a point where we get uncomfortable. So figure out ways you can help people that will inconvenience you. And in the inconvenience is where you and I will find that training to be like Jesus. It's where we will train to walk into a valley of humility rather than trying to be the greatest person in the world. So figure out ways that you can be inconvenienced. And now some of you are like, aren't like as mobile as I am. Like, literally, you're just, you're older, your body hurts more, I'm still young, my body's fine. So maybe, like, you're not, like, running around helping bunches of people. Maybe it's a matter of stop watching your favorite TV show for five minutes and pray for someone in need. And, and feel how uncomfortable it is to turn off your favorite show. Like, maybe that's how you are inconvenienced. Again, don't get locked in on the rule. I want you to get the spirit of this next step. So you and I are constantly thinking about how we can think of others and maybe ourselves less. That's how we walk the road of Jesus through the cross and then onward to an eternal destiny where we are exalted with Jesus. But you're not going to get it if you try to be the best and the greatest. It will come by serving others. So let's just figure out ways that we can do that in practical steps in ordinary life. And I think that's something we can do. All of us this week can be a little inconvenienced and then help someone. Let me pray for us as we move in that direction. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for, again, the inspiration you gave Mark to put together this account of the life of Jesus Christ this way. I pray that you would help us, Holy Spirit, fuel us with grace that we may learn how to be inconvenienced and help other people. And in that way, we actually will understand the way of Jesus instead of making excuses. So help us move away from the thinking and argument of the disciples, this idea of being the greatest, and help us move in the way of Jesus, this path of humility through the cross, picking up our cross every day. This is a lot of training involved, and we're going to need a lot of grace. This does not come by our own power. So help us out as we, as we train and we work under your grace. Convict us where we need convicted. 
build us up where we need build, uh, built up and put people around us that are going to help us do this. This is not a solo adventure. So we just pray that under the power of Jesus, who is the exalted king who was despised, killed, rejected, and came back to life. And it's, it's in his name that we pray. And together we say, Amen.